The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. Amen. You may be seated. The exhortation this morning, uh, we're going through Proverbs. Uh, some of the other guys are jumping ahead, but I am staying uh, with my next few verses, which are Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. My son, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. How do you know if God is disciplining you? And what is the purpose of his discipline? One of the ways you can find out if God is disciplining you is by asking yourself the question, am I in pain? Am I in pain? Paul says in Hebrews 12, 11, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All pain that we experience is a result of life in this fallen world. And even if the pain you are feeling, say uh, back pain, arthritis, or a headache, is not a direct result from something you did, you weren't banging your head against the wall, still, all pain stems from the fact that we sinned in our federal head Adam 6,000 years ago. You wouldn't be groaning when you woke up this morning if the fall never happened. When the first man disobeyed his father, all of us disobeyed our father. And because of this, the pain we experience as Christians can always be regarded in some way as the chastening discipline of the Lord. So if you are experiencing pain right now, physical, emotional, relational, whatever, here is cause for hope. All the pain that God brings into our life is from the loving hand of our Father. In fact, pain for the Christian is one of the chief ways we know God loves us. Listen to Hebrews 12, 7 to 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, Pastor Ty doesn't go around the neighborhood spanking other people's kids. That's not his, I don't think he does. That's not his pastoral visitation. No, Pastor Ty disciplines his own kids because they are his kids and he loves them. And this discipline is love even when they think, you know, maybe dad is just being mean. In a similar way, when God chastens us, it is always, always, always because he loves us. And he wants us to be holy like Jesus. So if God is disciplining you and you are in pain, take heed from this proverb. Do not hate it. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And do not detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as the father in whom a son he delights. Your pain is God saying, my son, my daughter, I love you. And soon I will wipe away every tear. From your eyes. From Habakkuk 3 2 and 16. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. 
When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Father, we confess that we have not loved your discipline. We kick and scream, we whine and complain, and think you cruel when hard things come into our life. Forgive us this blasphemy of your holiness and love. Help us to see your compassionate purpose in the midst of all our pain. We confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. From Habakkuk 2, 4 and 14. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Saints of Christ Church, because you have confessed your sins to God, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. And amen. Please remain standing as we read from God's word. Our sermon text is first uh, is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absence, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Our Father, our desire is that we would live worthy of the gospel of Christ. As a people, we would be united. Father, we do ask that your spirit would fill us even now. And it would be to your praise, to your glory. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are back in Paul's letter to the Philippians church. We've been, been away for a few weeks. And uh, last Sunday, uh, Aaron began a, a sermon series going through the great love chapter. And this was... Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So we got the Philippian church, we got the 
Corinthian church. And last week we learned that the Corinthian church was a really proud church. They wanted glory, and they wanted glory now. And this created all kinds of issues and divisions, to say the least. The Philippians, on the other hand, were a, were a well-behaved church. At least it appears. They were the one church that faithfully helped Paul financially. And actually, this whole letter to the Philippians is Paul's thank you note for their financial gift, showing his love to them. And yet, the same Corinthian spirit was already, already trying to creep into the Philippian church, and indeed into every church, because every heart is craving glory. Every heart has an insatiable hunger for glory. Now in this passage, Paul is writing to head off the Corinthian spirit from corrupting the Philippian church. And the way that he does this is by exhorting them to be united. To be united like soldiers on a battlefield. Now if you think of a battlefield, the battlefield is a place of glory. Some, winner, some are winners, and there are losers. And Paul is writing to the Philippians to win. He wants them to win. And the way, the way that they are going to win this glory is the same way that Jesus Christ wins glory. By humbling himself and by letting God be the one to exalt him. So that's what we're going to be looking at in our sermon. We're going to break it up. Uh, into two sections. In the first section, the, the last part of chapter 1, Paul gives us three pictures of what battlefield unity looks like. He says unity stands fast in one spirit. Unity strives together for the mission of the gospel. Unity suffers together for Christ. And then the section, second section, Paul is going to give us Three points of application for how we can be united as a church. So uh, we can get to Philippians chapter 1. If you uh, do not have your Bible, uh, you can look in our bulletin. We have our sermon text there. So we'll begin chapter 1, verse 27. The first principle of unity is that the church is to stand fast in one spirit. Paul begins, only... Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. So the image that comes to my mind is soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder with their shields overlapping. you got rows deep. And these individual soldiers standing firm together become a shield wall. Right? This is the Greek phalanx, or the Romans also use this to powerful effect, and they called it the testudo, right? And that's where you would have shields out front, shields on the side, shields up. Testudo is the tortoise, right? So they had the tortoise, and they would stand as one. If you remember that the Philippian church used to be, um, it was a Roman colony, so there was lots of Roman soldiers who would go there, live there, retire 
there. You just imagine these old Roman soldiers, retired soldiers, telling about the glory days in the Taurus, right? The glory days in the battle where we stand as one. But, this, the, but the strength of this unit, of these soldiers, was only as long as they remained united, as they stood fast. But if a soldier wandered off, or he went on his own glory run, or he fled right, as a coward, then the whole unit became vulnerable. Right? How much more vulnerable if the soldiers turn against each other? Right? Instead of going out to fight the enemy out there, they viewed the man next to them as the enemy. Right? We need to remember that Paul is so thankful for this community of believers, right? the Philippians. He says, that, I, I thank God constantly, always in every remembrance of you for our fellowship in the gospel. Right? And yet, even still, Paul warns this church to stand fast. I am so thankful for this community of believers. Right? Everyone talks about Moscow. It's a great community. We love the community. It's all about the community. And yet, we still need to be warned to stand fast in one spirit. Why? Because there can be divisions among us. How easy is it to pit Christ Church downtown versus Christ Church uptown? Or there's Contra Logos versus White Horse Hall or U of I versus NSA. The devil would just delight when there's divisions in our marriages, right? when there's competitions between brother and brother, brother and sister, right? when there's a bitterness, a separation between parents and their kids. So the first word that Paul gives to this church is Christians, stand fast in one spirit. The second picture of battle unity that Paul gives to the church is striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. We are to strive together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Right? We have a mission. We are on a mission. Right? And that is why we have the missions conference every year to be able to remind us of that. And if, I hope you attended. Right? Who was there? Not enough of you. You all should have been there. George Grant, he was so good. Like, people ask, how, what do you think of it? And I alternated between two, two words. Like, I was stoked and I was pumped. And both are very biblical words, I think. <laughs> right? Why? Because God has given us a mission. Right? What is the mission that Christ has given to the church? He says, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what Jesus told his church to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Right, what is our mission? Our mission is the advancement of the gospel into all the world. Think about that. There is plenty of work to do. There's plenty to work to do. And so, Paul says, in order to accomplish this mission, we must strive 
together for the faith of the gospel. The church of Christ must be united. And so we send, we support Chaba in his translation of the Bible to the Ivory Coast. Right? We, are, we celebrate and we're so thankful for Francis Fukushan and the work that he's doing with third millennium ministries, training up pastors in the French-speaking language. You know, he said uh, yesterday that by the year 2050, the most popular, the most common language in the world will be French. Right? The French finally conquer something. <laughs> Don't tell Francis I said that. But it's true, and if it's true, that is glorious, right? He needs to translate resources to support them, right? We need to train our kids with Christian education. The gospel needs to keep going into nursing homes with singing and visiting very loudly and clearly to these old folks. Our benevolence ministry needs to keep giving out Winko food cards and telling homeless guys about Jesus, right? You guys need to shovel the na- your drivers, your neighbors' sidewalks. Right? All of this is the gospel going forth. As a church, we need to seek the peace and the purity of our church. But also, we need to know that sometimes seeking the purity of the church doesn't look peaceful, right? We seek the peace and the purity of the church, but sometimes that appears like being rude. Right? That may appear like a big confrontation. Right? That may appear of totally killing the mood at a church potluck. Right? This is what Peter did to Paul when he confronted Peter at the church potluck over seating, switching seats. Right? Do you remember that story? That uh, Peter was sitting with certain Jewish or with certain Gentile Christians at a fellowship gathering. But then there was other Christian uh, Jews, Jewish Christians who came, and then ooh, Peter shrunk back. Right? He's like, ooh, actually, I can't, I can't finish dessert with you guys. Right? He pulls back, and Paul makes a big stink about this. Right? It says that he confronts Peter to his face. Right? He's like, this is enough where he's just like flipping the casserole table over. Right? <laughs> And he's like, whoa, 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 Paul, kind of making a big deal about this, right? And Paul is like, absolutely, because you know why? What is at stake here is the integrity, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is at stake here, that you are not justified by the works that you do or being Jewish or having to do these things, right? You are justified only by the faith in Christ. And so he sought the peace and the purity of the church. All of this is striving together for the advancement of the gospel. And Paul says that we must be united in our efforts. He says, with one mind. But what happens when there are two minds, right? Or three minds or a thousand minds, Whose mind wins out? And I'm listening to uh, uh, Tolkien's The Two Towers. uh, Dr. Mack would be proud of me. So I'm listening to Tolkien's Two Towers, and there's this section where uh, Merry and Pippin are captured by this cohort of orcs, 
right? But the problem is that some of the orcs are under uh, the command of Sauron, and they want to take the halflings back to Mordor, right? And then the other half is they are following the orders of Saruman, and they want to take them back to Isengard. They are of two minds, right? Whose mind decides? How can they be of one mind? And their solution is you hack off the head of the opposing opinion. Right? I'm not exactly making a one-to-one -one correspondence between our church community and the fighting Uruk-hai. Right? But Tolkien does give a good and accurate picture of the nastiness, right? of the power grasping, of the strife that comes from a selfish mind. Right? And if maybe if you aren't the strong one, if you keep losing the arguments, maybe you do feel like the hobbits getting orc marched off to where you don't want to go. Right? So the question is, whose mind ought we to have? A short answer is that all the church is to have the mind of Christ. Right? Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, we'll get to that. He says, let this mind be in you all, which is also in Christ Jesus. So in order to strive together for the faith of the gospel, the church must have the mind of Christ. More on that soon. All right. So we are to stand fast in one spirit. We are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. The third principle is that the united church courageously suffers together. All right, Paul says it in this way in verse 28. He says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer with him for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Right, Paul says, do not be terrified by your adversaries, by your enemies, but be, be courageous. Be courageous. Paul tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You think about it. Think about Paul's life. Right? Paul can say this because he knows the power when Christians are locked together in a dungeon with bloody backs and are fearless. He knows the power of God when Christians are fearless. When God's people sing and praise God and rejoice in the midst of suffering, the Lord is able to shake the strongholds of the enemy. It's the joyful confidence. This joyful confidence is it's an assurance of salvation right, to Christians. And it's a proof of perdition. It shows that there is a coming judgment against God's enemies, against the adversaries of the gospel. Right? Remember that story that we looked at a couple weeks ago with the Philippian jailer? Right? The, the jail shakes. He comes in. He is about to do the Harry Carey, kill himself. But then, he cry, but then Paul cries out, so don't kill yourself. 
And he comes and he falls and he pleads, what must I do to be saved? Because he recognizes that he is the one who is in danger. Christians who truly believe that nothing can separate them from the power of the love of God in Christ Jesus are to be without fear. There's not much you can do against the people who declare, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. You think about our imprisoned brothers and our sisters over in early reign covenant church in China. They are living out their love for Christ and for one another. And it's glorious. It is powerful. So Paul says, take heart. Be of good courage, even in suffering, for Christ's sake, together. So Paul has, has given us a glorious picture of battle unity, right? of soldiers together to the Philippian church. We are to stand fast. We are to strive together. We are to suffer fearlessly with Christ. Right? And, and perhaps the Philippians are kind of like me. Right? It's like, oh man, how are we together as a church supposed to have this unity? How are we supposed to do this together when I can't do this on my own, right? How can I do this by myself, right? So it's as hopeless as like, I can't, just imagine, I can't swim. You all can't swim. Let's lock our arms together and jump into the deep end of the pool, right? And we all sink together. But at least we'll be united in that, right? Like, where's the hope in that? There is no hope in that kind of unity, So how can we do this? How can the church be united in order to strive together for the gospel, to stand fast, to suffer together? Our unity does not come from each other, but it comes from our unity with Christ. It says, remember, remember the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul encourages the Philippians. Look at verse chapter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being united. So the question is, do we have these things? Do we have any of these things? Have we the consolation of Christ? Have we been comforted by the Father's love? Have we fellowship in the Spirit? Have we received any mercy and affection? I pray that it is yes, 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 and amen to all of these. This is what we are given in the gospel. And we experience these because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. This is what Paul says later in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read this to you. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What did Christ Jesus do? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 
taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Through the death of Christ, we have consolation. Through the death in Christ, we have seen the Father's love for us. Through the death of Christ, we have fellowship in the Spirit. Right? We have mercy. We have affection. The good news of the gospel is that because Jesus humbled himself on the cross, we have all of these things. And through the death of the cross, this is the heart of unity. We are united again to God. Our, our sin that has so long separated us has been removed. That middle wall of separation has been broken down, has been smashed to the death of Christ. Right? Through the cross is how we get unity. This is the heart of our unity. But the surprise, right? there's a surprise here. It is also, the surprise is that this is how you get glory. Through the cross is how you get glory. When Jesus went to the cross, he was going to battle. He was going to win glory. And Paul celebrates how, how after the cross that God has highly exalted Jesus and has given a name above every name, that the name of Jesus at every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus went to the cross, he was going to win glory. And the cross is the only way that leads to the crown. Right? Just pause here. What is glory? What is glory? We talk about it. We say that we all have an insatiable desire for it. What is glory? And this is a whole nother sermon. This is a, a lot of sermons, right? But what is glory? C.S. Lewis talks about glory as divine approval. As divine approval. Glory is hearing the Father say, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Glory is the Father looking at Christ, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and says, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. I see glory every day with my Son. Right? How many times throughout the day does Laz say, Papa, watch this. And it doesn't matter what he's doing. If he's running, he's jumping, he's diving, he's shooting me with a Nerf gun. Any kind of verb, he wants me to watch him. And he wants to hear, well done, man. Good job. I'm proud of you. What is glory? But it is the pleasure of the Father. We only get that by being united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is through what he has done on the cross. So Paul, Paul tells the Philippians, 
Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, in the gospel, we are made Christians. We are united to Christ. And in that, that is the heart of our unity. But when we are united to Christ, we are also united to his glory. We are united to his glory. Romans uh, 8 says that those whom God has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he called, he has justified. He has made them righteous. And those whom he has justified, he also has glorified. We are glorious in Christ. We are made glorious in Jesus. But this is not glorious in yourself. This glory must be given. It is a gift. And Paul says, he says that, uh, have this mind, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being of one accord, of one mind, and doing this with your brothers, with your sisters, with the church. Okay. So the question is, how to be united? How to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? How do we do this? We are to be united. We, we strive for glory. How do we do this? Uh, and don't worry. This is the second part of the sermon, but this is all considered application now. So it's not long. The end is near. This is all part of the application. It's not quite yet, Stephen. Don't come up to play the piano. We're not quite there yet. You've done that before. And I was like, oh, man, I got, we got pages to go. It's not like that. We are close. All of this is application, but we want to look at how to be united. And Paul gives us three lets, three lets for how the church of Christ is to be united. And Paul begins by identifying two sins that kills unity in the church. He says this in verse 3. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition means a striving to advance yourself through self-promotion, right? I am putting myself forward out of selfishness. But there's also in this, in this word, there's, there's a spirit of, of divisiveness. Like the, the Greek has reference to kind of like you're going electioneering, Right? You're putting yourself, you're campaigning for yourself. You're putting forward a party spirit. Right? Remember how Paul called out the Corinthian church for this same kind of divisiveness, this selfish ambition, where people said, I am of Paul. Paul's my guy. Or I am of Peter. Or I am of Apollos. He says this is divisive. Right? No saying, I am of Doug. I am of Toby. I am of Ty. Anyone? No. Don't do that. That's wrong. Right? And someone like, does like the Jesus juke and say, you know, you guys are so divisive. I am of Jesus. Right? No, no, no. It says this is, this is divisive. But this is such a wily sin because, because you, can, you can do good things, but out of selfish ambition, you're doing it completely for the wrong motive. Back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that some indeed preach Christ, 
even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Right, some people were actually preaching the gospel in order to promote themselves, in order to diss Paul. Yikes, right? But maybe you let it be known that you're, you're doing a Bible study or you're going up on campus to do an evangelism in order to impress the girls. Right? Is it good for a man to aspire to the office of an elder or a deacon? Maybe. Right? Is he doing that in order to get better business deals? Right? To have that power, that influence? No. Right? This selfish ambition and competition and divisiveness is from the devil as James says, and has no place in the church. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit comes from the Greek word uh, kenodoxia. And you may spot the word doxia, right? Doxia is where we get doxology, right? It is speaking praise. It is, is speaking glory, right? But kenodoxia means Empty glory. Empty glory. It's often translated vain glory. Right? This conceit is a hunger for glory for yourself. It is a self-manufactured glory. Right? Adam and Eve, you think way back, Adam and Eve hungered for glory to be like God. And so they grasped. Right? They did not wait to be given glory from God. They took and ate, and it was vanity. It was vanity. And they were left empty and shameful. Right? And you can read the whole history of man as striving for glory. Cain killed Abel because the Lord was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. And Cain wanted that glory. He wanted that pleasure, that, that affection, that divine approval from God. So what did he do? He killed off the competition, right? He killed off the guy who stole the glory that he wanted. And if your glory comes from man, then everyone becomes a competitor. Right? You guys hear that? If your glory comes from man, then, then everyone becomes a competitor, your brother is a competitor for taking dad's affection. Your classmate is a competitor because he made the dean's list. And I didn't. Or that other church and that successful ministry. Paul warns the church to watch out. Watch out because these will destroy our unity. So he says there is nothing to be done through selfish ambition and vainglory. Nothing. No strife, no puffing yourself up, no ministry competition, no doing it for the applause. Right? No, no looking to the stands to see who is watching. But he says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. What does Paul mean when he says to esteem others as better? It doesn't mean that you have to believe that the other person is better at everything than you are. 
right? So Stephen Grammer, man, you're, you're in this sermon twice. Good work, right? Stephen Grammer doesn't have to esteem me the better piano player based on my rousing rendition of Chopsticks, right? He doesn't have to say I'm a better piano player. Why? Because it's not true. It's lie, right? All you have to do is listen objectively. I am not a better piano player. But when you esteem others as better than yourself, you consider others as more significant than yourself. Right? You mentally take the lower seat in the relationship and you give them the high seat. You give them the place of honor. Right? What is this? This is humility. Humility thinks of others as more significant than yourself. But the problem is like we hear that and it's like, oh yeah, that is very biblical. That is very true. And it's easy just to blow right past it. So here's another question. Turn it on the other side. How many people do you treat as less significant than yourself? Who is less significant than yourself? Who do you treat like that? Who do you feel wastes your time? Who are the people you brush off? Who are the people who irritate you? These might be the ones that you do not esteem as better than yourself. But remember, the one that we are imitating in this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? When he became a man, how did he interact with the irritating people? How did Jesus interact with those who people thought were irritating? He fed them. He healed them. He laughed with them. He washed their feet. He died for them. We are those irritating people. And he valued our lives more than he valued his life. And this is love. So what does this look like? Kids, this one's for you. How do you esteem other people as better than yourself? When you're out at recess, right, look for the kids who are on the outside. Right? Look for the kids who may not be in that group of friends, who may be alone. Right? Go love them. Go play with them. Right? Guys, boys, when you're playing sports, don't be a ball hog. Right? Pass the ball. Share your toys with your brother. Last, moving quickly here. This ties it all closely with our final let. He says, let each of you not only look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't look out just for yourself, but look out for the interests of others. Again, this is love. When you live looking to the interests of others, that often means that you do the hard thing, right? You take on the responsibility so that it does not land on the other, right? So that, that, guys, this means no nice guy syndrome. Have you guys heard about this problem? The nice guy syndrome? The nice guy pretends, or the nice guy is, is easygoing, right? He's very likable. He doesn't want to make a problem. But the nice guy pretends that there is peace, peace, in order to avoid the conflict, right? In order to avoid the challenge, in order to pretend there is not a war. And as a result, the problem lands on 
the wife, on the kids, on the coworker. And that's just a lot of frustration, stewing feelings, resentment. Right? But this is not, this niceness is actually just cowardice. Right? You are not really loving others. Humility forgets about yourself. It stands up for the other people. Love makes that phone call for that awkward conversation to see if we're good. Right? Are we in fellowship? Is there any sin that we need to deal with? Love speaks up when it's not cool or popular or safe. Right? So what's our summary of all of this? He says, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or vain glory. Be humble. Consider others as more important than yourself. Right? And he says that if you do this, when you do this, Christ church will be united. But the problem is, is you read through this list. I mean, it's so, so simple. I mean, it's basically just like, guys, love each other. Right? Love each other. And if you go through this list, oof, I'm not doing any of these all the time. Right? I'm failing on each one of these. So what do you do? You remember the gospel of Christ. That Jesus Christ humbled himself in order that you might have forgiveness of your sin for being puffed up. For being that nice guy. Right? For having that murderous envy in your heart. And all the rest. Right? Remember the gospel of Christ. But also remember that Jesus has revealed the way to true glory. Do you want glory? Do you want to win glory? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus by not going for the crown first, but going through the cross. Paul wants Christ church to win glory. He wants us to be a glorious people. So he says, be united and follow our Lord Jesus Christ into battle. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the fellowship that we have in the spirit. We are thankful for your love that you have shown upon us. Father, may we taste and see that you are good, that you are glorious. Father, this is all so important for us as a church, as families, as dads, as daughters, as your people. We do long to be united, that we would be a great force for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would root out any sin that divides us, so that way we, as your people, would be united and would be glory to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. You are soldiers in the Lord's army. Do you know that? You are soldiers in the Lord's army. Perhaps you haven't thought of yourself as a soldier. Maybe you think that becoming a Christian means that your warfare is over. And in one sense, this is absolutely, gloriously true. When you become a Christian, your war against God is gone, is over. But when you become a Christian, your war for God is begins. You no longer fight against God, but now fight for him as a soldier. The gospel of Christ means that you get to fight on the right side, on the winning side, because you are in the Lord's army. You are in 
his church. You were enlisted by your baptism, and you've been given a helmet, a shield, a breastplate, a sword, or you have the armor of God. And here are your fellow soldiers. Right? Look around. Here are your fellow soldiers. And we are to go fight the good fight of faith. And this is a good fight of faith because we fight confident of victory. We believe that Jesus, our captain, has already conquered through the cross and has been awarded the victor's crown. And so we are to go fight like him. We look to the interests of others. We love our enemies. We confront and confess and forgive sin. We sing. We play with our kids. We feast. This is how soldiers in the Lord's army fight. And every Sunday, the Lord feeds his army. And this is a celebration meal because Christ has already secured the victory. And this is also a battle meal. This is a battle meal that strengthens us to get back out there into the good fight. And so, Christian soldiers, hear your captain's order. And he says, come and welcome. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for what you have done in us. Thank you that you have rallied us as your people. We pray that we would follow your son into battle, but do it in the strength of humility, the strength of a broken body and shed blood. We pray that this would strengthen us to be your soldiers. We pray this in Christ's name. And amen. amen. So the, char the charge is this. Christ Church downtown, you have been given the gospel of Christ. You have been loved by the amazing love of the Father. You have been united in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You have been strengthened with bread. You have been emboldened with a little swig of wine. You have these fellow soldiers. And, and as Pastor Doug likes to say, here's the charge. Go fight win. <laughs> and we do so under the benediction of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.